Well, we are starting a new book today, and that is the book of Philippians. So you'll want to turn there. It's in the middle of those small books in the middle of your New Testament. Um, as you're turning there, um, I'll be excited um, to start a new book. It's been a while. So we're going to do the first 11 verses of the book of Philippians today. And so I'm going to read that for you. Please listen carefully. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it more than we think. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to a wonderful book written by the Apostle Paul. So we pray that we would learn from you today, that we would learn how to love one another, that we would learn how to pray for one another. Thank you that once again today we're learning from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so we pray, speak through Philippians 1 this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So this week, as I was preparing uh, for this message, I came across a story uh, by Mike Campbell. Mike is a PCA pastor in Mississippi, and he tells of a time he was invited to preach in another church in another state. And so he flew there and they sent the pastoral intern uh, to pick him up at the airport. And as he tells the story, he says, as we were driving uh, to my hotel, we got into a conversation and uh, this guy told me that he had just gotten back from celebrating his grandparents' 75th anniversary, 75 years. And he says, well, I've never met anybody that's been married that long. And so I inquired about his grandparents because I wanted to know, I mean, how in the world do you have a marriage that lasts that long? And I was utterly stunned by what he said. So without even looking over at me, he replied to my question about his grandparents by saying, Pastor, they absolutely hate each other. And it wasn't they just started to hate each other. 
For most of the 75 years they were married, they hated each other. I mean, they can't stand one another. He was like, what in the world? And he went on to tell Mike that they fulfilled their responsibilities towards each other. The man provided, the woman took care of the home, they had a couple kids, but they never treated each other with any love. They never really cared for each other. They never liked each other. They said awful things to each other all the time. And he said, so I had to ask, why did they stay together for 75 years? And he said, well, you know, they were of that generation when you gave your word or you committed yourself to something or pledged yourself to something, then you did it. You made a vow, you stayed together, which is very different than the world today. And they just lived long enough to be married for 75 years. Now, as I thought about Mike's story, one of the things I thought first was the amount of time they were married is really impressive. And while the time was impressive, what they did with the time wasn't impressive at all. They didn't honor God in their marriage. And I wondered if I knew anyone like that. And I could think of a few folks and could guess at some others. But then I started thinking about folks in our church, not about your marriages, but how many people in the congregation really don't like each other? Are there people here that you're polite to on Sunday, but hope you don't actually have to see the rest of the week? People that you worship God with and despite all of those one another commands we just went through the whole summer, you know, and the love one another, and you just don't. And I'm not talking about people that you don't really know. The people you do know, but just don't like, let alone love. And as I thought about this, my first thought was, that's really sad. And my second thought was, it's probably more common than any of us would like to admit. To some degree, we're probably all somewhat guilty of disliking people we're commanded to love. And as I thought through Paul's writings, it's pretty clear he dealt with a number of people just like that. People who are divided, people who are at odds with each other, people who claim to love Christ, but obviously didn't love Christians. Now, if we go further into this letter, we'd find the Philippian church had problems with unity. Ambitious preachers are vying to be the next celebrity uh, preacher. People are beginning to polarize into various camps. There's self-centeredness. There's a lack of care for others that plague the church. Paul even goes so far to call two of them out by name. In Philippians 4, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We don't hear those names much anymore. There's a reason for that. How'd you like to be the one that had your name show up in the scriptures as this person doesn't get along with this person? Now, knowing that Paul's going to address these issues, we begin to see these 
One another commands to love one another versus in a different light. How do we love people we don't like? And what do we do when we're the one who's not being liked? Now, it's true sometimes we bring that on ourselves. And truth be told, sometimes we deserve it. But what can we do about it? Well, we can start by turning to the book of Philippians because it's a book about Christ. And it's a book about how Christians should treat each other. And it starts with the Apostle Paul specifically praying for people to love each other, even when it's hard. I hope it's becoming clear that we need Philippians. We need Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't turned there yet, please do so now. It's in the small letters in the middle of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, if you can't remember that, just remember Gentiles eat pork chops. You will find it every time. Now, Philippians, some of you really like that. I, the uh, Philippians has four chapters. There is a total of 104 verses. It's about five pages in Times New Roman, 12 point, double space, single sided, with one inch margins, which is what I require of all my students. It's 2,381 words in English, or about half a sermon. And yet, like Jesus, this book is filled with grace and truth. We can stop and think about all the great themes that Paul covers in the book of Philippians. There's the sovereignty of God. He doesn't get six verses into the book without mentioning the sovereignty of God. There's the humility and humiliation of Christ. It's recorded in the great hymn in chapter two. There's a meditation on our privilege of our union with Christ in chapter three, where he talks about suffering the loss of all things, but that doesn't matter because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He talks about justification by faith alone, the all-sufficiency of Christ, the communion of the saints, how to live with one another as the people of God in the local church. It's all in one letter. You can sit down and read the whole thing in under 20 minutes. And think about all the memorable lines that are in this letter. There is a bunch of wonderful lines. You wonder if Paul had a you know, speechwriter that was trying to give him that, that great line that was gonna make the news. In our passage today, verse six. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse I ever memorized. And I, and I memorized that verse because when I was given a Bible shortly after I came to Christ as a sophomore in high school, the guy who gave me uh, the Bible had written that verse inside the front cover. I still have that Bible was a Phillips uh, paraphrase of the New Testament. I didn't know what a paraphrase was, but that was it. I mean, this is the book where he says, for, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. This is the book where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the book where he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the book where he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Half a sermon, and he says all that. Now, I've come to the point where I believe this is the time we need Philippians as a church. And there are four specific reasons I think we, as a church, need Philippians. First, Philippians shows us a believer in difficult circumstances. Yet a believer who's spreading a joy that's contagious. You know, I know some of the circumstances that some of you are in, have been in, and uh, things that you're facing, and this is a book that we need. After all, remember, Paul's writing this book. Where is he writing this book from? He's in prison. If there's ever a place to be depressed, it'd be there, and yet this whole letter radiates with joy. Second Philippians shows us a believer on whom the world has lost its hold. The world no longer has anything to offer Paul. There's nothing it can give him. It has, uh, doesn't have anything that he wants. His old righteousness has nothing to offer him. His old credentials have nothing to offer him. His old traditions have nothing to offer him. He has now found something better. He has found Jesus. Third, Philippians shows us the humility of a sovereign savior. Jesus comes down from heaven's throne. He dwells with us as one of us. He goes uh, down the steps of humiliation to the cross and the tomb, and he does all of that as a means of our redemption. But he also does that as an example of how to walk with him. As the Apostle Peter would later say, in his steps. And the Apostle Paul is urging us to fight for joy, calling us to grow in humility and pleading with us to know Christ. Fourth, Philippians shows us that believers can understand a peace that passes understanding. Listen to that again. Philippians shows us that believers can understand a peace that passes understanding. It's not a mistake. Paul is letting us know even under the crushing load of life in the worst moments, the darkest days, even in the valley of the shadow of death, there is a peace that is beyond knowing. He wants you to understand a peace beyond understanding, to comprehend a peace beyond comprehension. And we should want that. Philippians is about a fight for joy, growing in humility, and uh, it's about the worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. It's about a peace that only he can give and that no one or nothing can take away. And for all those reasons and a hundred more, it's time for Philippians, Apotomic Hills. So let's uh, dive in to the book. I have preached on this passage three times before, uh, in 91 and 93 before I got here, and then in 2008. And I look back at all of those sermons, and they were terrible. 
it was like, I was thinking this would be easy. I've preached on this before. And I started looking and I was like, oh man, this is not good. Now, Frank preached his candidating sermon from this text back in 2016. Yes, he has now been here five years. Huh? All right. Obviously, that was not a bad sermon because we hired him. Now, we know how this church started because it's described for us in the book of Acts, chapter 16. The first members of this church uh, were Lydia. So the first member of the church was a woman. She is a seller of purple. Then we have a demon-possessed slave girl. And finally, we get the Philippian jailer and his family. So this is a typical PCA church plan. You know, we're going to talk about those folks more next week. So today, let's start with Paul's opening statement. He says, I know who you are in Christ. I know who you are in Christ. We uh, put out on the, on the website the sermon outline every week. encourage you to print that off or have that on your device to make it a little bit easier to follow along. Verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul introduces himself as a servant and addresses all of them as saints. And he says, with the overseers, who are the elders and the deacons, who he does not call saints. But we assume they're included in that description. He's not writing to those who are especially holy, but to the ordinary, everyday uh, members of the church. The word saints means set apart. All Christians are saints. God has set us apart from people in general and made us his own special people for his own special purposes. If you look in Ephesians 2, in the King James Version, uh, we're called his peculiar people. That's right. It is a favorite uh, passage. You don't quite get that sense in any of the other versions. Um, but because you're in this particular, peculiar group of saints, uh, Paul greets you with grace and peace. Grace is, of course, the fountain from which all of God's blessings flow, and peace is one of the greatest of those blessings. And because believers have peace with God, we also have the peace of God. And that's an abiding sense of peace deep within, regardless of circumstances. So that's the first thing. Paul says, I know who you are in Christ. Second, he says, I have you on my mind. I have you on my mind. Verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul couldn't think of the Philippians without giving thanks to God for their fellowship in the gospel. That word fellowship refers to sharing or holding something in common. We tend to use that word sort of loosely today. 
Any gathering of Christians where there's a feeling of camaraderie we call fellowship. We've made the word synonymous with good food and a few laughs. It's not a bad thing. But of course that makes our fellowship no different than anybody else's fellowship. And the Apostle Paul has something far different, far better in mind. It's not merely joining, uh, enjoying everybody's company. It's about a partnership, and specifically a partnership in the gospel. Now, Christian fellowship's a pretty amazing thing. People who have nothing in common find a common life in Christ. Think again of this church in Philippi. You have Lydia, you have a slave girl, and you have a jailer. Three people who have nothing in common until they come to Christ. But the gospel of Christ makes them partakers of the same life and partners in the same cause. And so the apostle gives thanks for their partnership in the work of the gospel. And he can't help but add a word of thanksgiving for the word of the gospel, work of the gospel in them. He's thankful, verse six, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is particularly good at slipping these little gems of breathtaking truth into sort of ordinary portions of his letter. Where you're just kind of reading along and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what did he say? That's something special. And this verse is one of those gems. It tells us the following. First of all, that salvation is God's work. The Philippians didn't begin the work of salvation in themselves, and, you know, hoping that God would come along and add a little something to it. It is entirely his work from beginning to end. God provided the way of salvation through his son Jesus. He enables the Philippians to receive that salvation by grace through faith. Second, salvation is a good work. It lifts the sinner from eternal condemnation and ruin and wrath and makes that person part of God's family. And it says in our text, a partaker of God's glory. Now who would say that's not a good thing? And third, salvation is a sure work. Paul says, I am certain of this. I am sure of this. I am persuaded. I am convinced. Find those words in a variety of different translations. But God doesn't begin and then abandon the work somewhere along the way. He doesn't pull people from the flames of destruction only to let them slip back in and be consumed. God completes the work of salvation. Now most of us know what it's like to uh, plan something and start a work only to see it fail. Not so with God. He's telling us that all his people make it home. The faithful God faithfully completes his work. I'm convinced, convinced that verse 6 is actually the key verse of the book of Philippians. And I'm going to spend a huge amount of time on it, but we're going to come back to that verse again and again and again. So Paul keeps them in mind. But then he says, I hold you in my heart, verses 7 and 8. I hold you in my heart. This bond of fellowship between the Philippians and Paul is so strong that he, he didn't want to be uh, separated from them anymore. He says, I long, I yearn to be with them. Now, how many moms do we have here 
who have dropped off a first kid at college. Any moms who have dropped off a first kid at college? I'm seeing five, six, seven, eight hands. Good, keep your hands up. How many of you cried on the way home? Yeah, all the hands stay up. Everybody cried on the way home. Um, that's how Paul feels. It hurts to be away from them. So to remove all doubt about how much he loves them, he writes, starting verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul can't go any higher than this. His love for the Philippians is such that it reflects the love of Christ himself. Paul is thankful for how they've been partners with him in the past. He's confident of their future uh, perseverance, uh, verse six, and that what God started him, he'll complete. But he's thankful for him right now. Verse seven, you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's writing from a prison in Rome. Plug for Sunday school, we're doing Romans. You should come, we just started that, it'll be awesome. Um, so he is writing from Rome in prison to this church that got started when he was in prison and the jailer got converted. So at some point God told Paul that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He kind of did a tour of prisons. So you have that to look forward to. Um, anyway, he's sharing the gospel in prison. And with Paul, they're praising God, they're sharing the gospel, they're serving others, they're loving one another. Paul says they are partakers with me of grace. Now, the more um, that I grow in Christ, the longer that I've been a Christian, the more I sense how much grace I need to go on with Christ. The more I actually view my fellow saints as fellow sinners, who not only need grace of God, but also need grace from me as we labor together for Christ. And viewing ourselves and other Christians as fellow partakers of grace, that should humble us because it puts us all on the same level. Paul calls God as his witness of his longing and affection for the Philippians, not because they're prone to doubt, but because he feels it so deeply. He is unashamedly emotional in his love for God's people. So Paul has kept them on his mind. He holds them in his heart. And then he says, I keep you in my prayers. Verses 9 through 11, I keep you in my prayers. He's expressing his gratitude for the Philippians. And he proceeds to share how he prays for them. The prayers that he's offering on their behalf. Starting in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
So Paul starts off by asking first their love would abound. Now this struck me as sort of a strange request because as we've already noted, the Philippian church is already characterized by love. And we can be sure Paul's not denying what he's already stated. I think he's affirming that love is a grace that we can always advance. No matter how much we love others, we can always love them more. He's also praying for them to abound in a certain type of love that is love with knowledge and discernment. Now in chapter 3, he's going to find it necessary to warn them about the danger of false teachers. And the Philippians would make themselves easy prey for such teachers if in the interest of being loving, they were uncritically accepting everything these false teachers were presenting. And I think we need to be keenly aware of the same danger. How often has the church today refused to stand against doctrinal error because someone argued we must be loving? And of course, love today is understood to mean being tolerant. One of the plagues, I think, of the church today is we are far more likely to take stands on political issues than on theological ones. I mean, just look at COVID. Many Christians have taken more definitive stands on that issue, both pro and con, than they're willing to take on what the Bible teaches. And that shouldn't be. And I'm not pointing out what I think is right or wrong. I just think our stands on the issues of our day shouldn't be greater than our stands on what the Bible teaches us. No one believes more firmly in love than the Apostle Paul, but he doesn't hesitate to rebuke others when they compromise the truth. And Paul's able to do that because he understands that love and truth are not enemies. They're not opposed to each other. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is stand for truth in a loving way. That's when it gets really hard. But that's what the Bible teaches. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 2 Timothy 2, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So that love that abounds comes with a desire to correct and restore in the spirit of gentleness. That's the first thing Paul's asking. He continues by asking, second, they would approve what's excellent. And the word approve here is to use as we would use the word distinguish. Paul's praying that the Philippians and us would be able, in the midst of competing issues and concerns, to see what's most important, what's uh, deserving of being a priority, that they could make wise spiritual decisions. Paul's desire for the Philippians was they'd be pure and blameless 
for the day of Christ. And Paul always kept that uh, in view, that day that we would stand before Christ. And he wants the people that he loves to do the same. And he says the key to living this day is to remember that day, the day of Christ. So he wants them to approve what's excellent so that they'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then finally he asks that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I don't know if you remember uh, Timo's pastoral prayer. He prayed through these verses. He prayed for all three of these things. As Paul reflects on the fruit of righteousness, you know, we're reminded of the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night before his crucifixion in John 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then a few verses later, he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. It's not surprising then that Paul reminds them and us that the fruits of righteousness come through Jesus Christ. And because they come from Christ, they are to the glory and praise of God, because Jesus did everything for the glory of God. So that's the prayer. And it's easy, right? We've all got it, we've written it down, we made our notes, and we're just gonna go out and do it. I was reading in one commentary pastor was writing about it. He took a new church in California. And when he got to this new church, he was very excited. I got to this new church and discovered that the church secretary uh, tended to be abrasive and insensitive to people. And everyone knew it. So everyone avoided her. So he says, this doesn't work good. And people in the church don't want to talk to the church secretary. Uh, so one day he sat down with her and he asked her to tell him how she met the Lord. And she proceeded to share her story. And she told of a terrible childhood in which her father had abused and then abandoned her. And there was a succession of stepfathers who'd been equally abusive. And she finally ran off with her boyfriend and escaped this terrible uh, home uh, that she was in. And it was only later in life that she met Christ. And so part of her insensitivity is keeping everyone at arm's length so she doesn't get hurt again. And he said hearing her story changed his attitude towards her. He said, I realized, as she went through the story, that she was a partaker of God's grace with him. Now, of course, grace doesn't mean that we tolerate sin or we shrug off ungodly words. Sometimes we need to confront and help others face and overcome their faults. But if we remember that we're all partakers of God's grace, God's undeserved favor, we'll give one another a little more room to grow. We'll be a little more patient, a little more forbearing with one another. True Christian fellowship is partaking in God's grace. Now here's the hard part. How can I love a Christian like that? How can I love a Christian whom I find it hard to be around? Well, to be honest, it ain't easy. Everything Paul's mentioned so far goes into the answer. 
You need to pray diligently for that person. You need to work with him or her in gospel service. It's a lot easier to like someone when you serve side by side with them. You need to trust God to do his work of sanctification in them. Ask her to share her testimony of how she came to know Christ. And in the praying and the working and the serving and the hearing, you'll discover that you're both partakers of God's grace. And remember, Jesus loved that difficult brother, that difficult sister, enough to go to the cross for him or her. And he can love them through you. So as you obey by judging your sinful thoughts towards that person and then acting in love towards them, the feelings of love will eventually follow. I don't know if this is true in all cases, but it's really hard to dislike somebody you're praying for regularly. It's just hard. So if you really dislike somebody, start with that. You start praying for them. It's hard to dislike somebody you pray for. You know, Paul prays this prayer. He's praying for the Philippians, for the church, pray for us. He's praying for nothing less than a renewed people and a renewed church. He's praying that we might be right now what we ought to be. And what we certainly will be one day at that day of Christ. This text teaches us to pray that we'll test and approve the highest and best and holiest things, what is excellent. All with a view to the day of Jesus Christ. Even now, Paul's prayer insists that Christians are to be as holy as forgiven sinners can be this side of heaven. And we're to pray to that end. And it's in this way that Paul's prayer for what is excellent is tied to that long-term view of the day of Christ. And the main point here is that although Paul's prayer is the equivalent of praying for renewal, what he's doing is praying. He's not simply encouraging us to be more loving, nor is he trying to organize us to somehow show more love. And still less is he rebuking us for a lack of love. What he's doing is praying for a renewed love. And if renewal is the work of God, if transforming and discerning love that enables us to approve what is excellent is at the core of the fruit of God's work in our lives, if true righteousness is fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, then however much God may use the various means in our life, the means themselves do not guarantee anything. Only God can produce transformation. Only God can bring renewal. So it's critical that we ask God to work in us. It's vital that we learn to pray this prayer with the Apostle Paul. This magnificent introduction that began with Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians, moved to his affection for them, concludes with his description of how he prays for them. This is the substance of real prayers, repeatedly offered in real time and space in history by a real person. This is not just some pious spiritual reflection. This is how Paul prayed. This is what Paul prayed for. We need to be praying these things for each other. We need to be praying these things for our children and our grandchildren. 
This is a call for real prayers for real people in real space and real time. And if Paul is praying for these for the Philippians, then surely those of us at Potomac Hills can be praying these things for each other, that we would abound in love and grow in knowledge and increase in discernment and choose what is excellent and continue in uh, integrity and sincerity and live lives filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So may God make it so. For you and for me. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our need to repent of all our excuses. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us. Enable our love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, enable us to demonstrate this love and this discernment and this righteousness by how we pray. Grant that we may live like people called to love and to pray for one another and then work in each of us this fall as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the one who loves us unconditionally, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.